Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here at JM at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you as always. I don't know if you like this comparison or not, but <clears throat> with what's happening <clears throat> with with, hap- with what is happening this week in the United States these pipe bomb deliveries, etc., and then watching the White House and the press go back and forth in terms of who's responsible for the rhetoric and the tone <clears throat> and the tone in this country. Unfortunately for me, it reminds me, and we were we were reminded of this last weekend, of the uh, same type of rhetoric that goes back and forth around the time each year of the uh, commemoration of the assassination of uh, Prime Minister Rabin. Um, I mean, you saw last week, the, uh, the earlier this week, I should say, on Sunday, Uh, the granddaughter of the prime minister in front of the current prime minister and president of Israel, um, making, you know, pretty drastic accusations about what they, or at least he, the prime minister, uh, was responsible for in terms of rhetoric and atmosphere around the time of the assassination. Do you you think that these types of battles between the press and the administrations are comparable? I mean, every situation is different. It's not a new charge. It was made at the time of uh, the assassination and uh, repeated uh, frequently since. Um, and right now, the you know the charge that you bring against people is that they're uh, polarizing society because there is a polarization taking place. Uh, I think it's more pronounced here, and it's uh, uh, even more pronounced in Europe. The the divisions, the, the loss of the center, the um, and we see it in in many places, in many countries. It's the nature of societies today, and the, so I, I don't know that any particular accusation or the fact that that uh, his granddaughter uh, at the on the occasion of the memorial, it's, it's the art site of uh, of right. assassination of Rabin. So you know you have to be careful what what we read into every incident. There is. A troubling trend in the world, and that, that's no doubt, and that that the manifestations of anti-Semitism, and um, and the debates over every reference, any kind of things, you know, sometimes is put in the category of racism or bigotry or other things, which it's not and would normally not become so hypersensitive about each of these things. But now there is there is reason to be, and the, the um, we as a Jewish community are particularly sensitive. When we see this kind of, um, of polarization and politicization, and particularly when it comes, our concern is that that not happen in the United States when it comes to Israel, and that's why the midterm elections have raised uh, concerns in a lot of circles. I mean, there's always been a an association, unfortunately, in history between you know political feelings and violence, and there's always been you know that that combination. But the blame, the the blame game, and 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 not not being ready to and willing to acknowledge that both sides, no matter what side you're on, everyone, whether it's Israel or the United States, really should be acknowledging the reality, and that is that both sides engage in all this and say, you know, some pretty crazy... Look, you're, I mean, you're generally a BB fan, so, you know, I don't know if you're the best person to ask about this, because I, I know you like him and everything, but, it, but isn't it somewhat exaggerated and really unfair that he continues for the last over 20 years to be the the whipping boy for the Rabin family, that he was responsible because of you know his rhetoric in the campaign that time for for Yigal Amir killing their grandfather. Yeah, I mean it's it it, it wasn't from then and and the uh, there were you know 
posters and things. Remember, dressed as Nazis and all that. And there was never any indication that that Netanyahu approved that or was involved with that. Uh, but you, you always go after the leader. You, the, you, it, blaming the people doesn't do anything. It, uh, it's harder to uh, to say that the atmosphere was created by some uh, minor figures or by you know extremist elements. You, you, in a politicized societies, they go after the leader. And while others would be allowed to would get away, or they wouldn't continue to blame on other things, not talking about the assassination in general. Um, people then uh, focus on every action, every statement, everything that, uh, and at times leaders are not careful with things that they say, so it falls into this to this trap, this ongoing trap. Yeah, that's true. All right, you met, we'll, we'll get to the new chief of staff, the IDF, in a minute, but uh, you, you mentioned earlier the midterm elections, and uh, we've expressed concern. Frankly, uh, we've been in touch with Senator Schumer's office, but uh, he has still not agreed to this point. Uh, to discuss the issue with us, but they did send us his official statement. I felt it wasn't strong enough. I'm just curious what you have to say. Give me a second to read it. United States Senator Charles Schumer, in response to all of these articles and uh, and conjecture about the uh, Democrats uh, nationwide being uh, less pro-Israel than they used to be, said as follows, Senate Democrats are very strongly pro-Israel and will remain that way. Senate Democrats led the charge to pass the Taylor Force Act, a record amount of assistance for Israel to protect herself, including funds for Iron Dome and David Sling, and recently and unanimously passed a bill out of committee condemning the use of human shields by Hamas and Hezbollah. I, meaning Senator Schumer, will also be pushing legislation that strongly opposes BDS. It, 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 it sort of seems to me that he's avoiding the real issue here, which is there's got to be an acknowledgement that there's a segment of the Democratic Party right now that is really trying to shift the entire party regarding um, its feelings toward Israel. What do you think of the statement? Look, he's the leader of the Democratic Party. He uh, he stood up on, on a lot of issues. I don't think it's about Schumer. I think that this is a, a much broader phenomenon, something to which we devote a great deal of time, because we are concerned that, that Israel and other Jewish concerns, but particularly in regard to Israel, not become a partisan issue, not become politicized, not be allowed to, to uh, be dictated by uh, small extremist elements on either side of, of the agenda. We have uh, anti-Semitic people and people at or said anti-Semitic things in the Republican side as well. The, the statistics, though, show that the, certainly on the issue of support for Israel, uh, a vast difference between uh, the two. But it's it's uh, overall, this polls still show that that the American people on both sides support Israel and support the U.S.-Israel relationship. Right. There is a problem, and and there is a small group that is going to be elected that are vehemently anti-Israel. We've always had anti-Israel people in the Congress. I think overall the Congress may be stronger for us in in some respects in the next election. And again, I'm not talking about who runs it, but Mm -hmm. the individuals who are running. And um, uh, and in some aspects, if the House, for instance, is Republican, is Democratic, you have uh, chairmen, chair people like Elliot Engel will take over foreign relations, appropriations will go to Nita Lowy. There are others that we won't like, but we, it's always true of either party. 
But there is a problem, and uh, we are certainly concerned about it. And rather than just condemning people, we are trying right. to work to do it. One of the things that is troubling to me is, is the associations with things like Farrakhan. Right. And again, uh, as you know, I, I point always to the developments in England, not always often, uh, certainly in regard to BDS many years ago, which turned out to be true that we followed their pattern from top down. And I think that the divisions that we're seeing in England, we have to make sure that we don't allow that kind of a circumstance. And, and the real danger is that it's, it's, it is a small element that is vehemently and, and virulently, uh, let's say, anti-Israel. But they metastasize, and they start to influence, and people look to them as a model. And when they win an election, they say, oh, that's the way. And then they, and young people then get energized over, without understanding the real implications and significance of some of those positions. Right, but, so, but you said it. You said it a minute ago that there is a problem, and I'm just, I'm just concerned that Senate leadership, Senate Jewish leadership, or those who are looked to, like Senator Schumer, you know, to, to be leaders in that position and, and, and to be supporting Israel, they're not acknowledging that there's a problem. That's, that, not, that's not, not the case. I can tell you in the conversations we have. Well, it's not that, in the well, they're not going to do it right before an election. You're not, you know, you can't expect a Democratic leader or a Republican leader to come out and condemn the party, which, which the whole party. It is not the whole party. Uh, we've met with the chairman of the Democratic Party. We've met with other leaders. We're we are, they are concerned about it. Uh, I can tell you, New York State Governor Cuomo has been concerned about it. He raised concerns with us about it a, a while ago. Other po- politicians in the Democratic Party have raised concerns and are helping to work on it. And, and I have to say that I think Senator Schumer is concerned about it, and I know he's concerned about this uh, this issue. You know, uh, are there things I want from every politician? I want more political leader uh, to, to to be more in line and more outspoken on our issues across the board. All right. So, but, a- so after November sixth, if you hear that the senator and others sat down with these uh, young progressives and and tried to uh, explain to them the reality and how important Israel is as a friend of the United States, that that it's very likely that could happen that they would take an active role and try to uh, alter their opinion and and get them to understand the reality. Well, I happen to know that it's already happening. Hmm. What do you think of uh, the choice by, or the announcement by Minister of Defense Avigdor Lieberman that Aviv Kochavi will be the next IDF Chief of Staff? Uh, I think it's a great choice. Aviv Kochavi is in the mid-50s. He's brilliant. He's highly respected. Um, he was uh, the deputy chief of staff, and um, I think it's, uh, it was a very good choice. There were other candidates, or some of them were, I'm sure, equally or good also. But in terms of, I think, bypassing him would have created some problems. Could you explain to us what Jordan did this week? It's been painted as the media as if they've canceled part of the peace treaty with Israel. Could you explain to us exactly what happened? Yes. Um, when they signed the peace deal 24 years ago, one of the provisions was that these two pieces of territory, one in the north, one in the south, one near about 130 kilometers or so from uh, Aqaba and um, uh, Eilat, uh, this was an area that was um, used for agriculture. Both areas were used for agricultural purposes. And about 300 people, I guess, farm this land or families that depend on this land. And the northern area where the Isle of Peace, if you remember, it's right near the uh, where these seven girls, it, 
it is where these seven right. girls were killed and others injured by a Jordanian soldier who fired on them and King um, King Hussein, the late King of Jordan, uh, went to visit the families and, and kneeled in front of them in, in um to ask forgiveness from them. Uh, and this was an area that in the 1920s, a Jewish man bought a lot of this land, and he put up there a hydroelectric plant, because it's at the confluence of uh, the waters there. Um, I don't think it's functioning anymore, but there were, again, it was used for agricultural purposes. But in the deal, sovereignty was uh, given to Jordan. And the deal says that if they either side wants to change the deal or pull out, then they have to give notice one year in advance. And the deadline was this week. So that's why it was done this particular week. And they now keep saying that uh, this doesn't affect the peace treaty or our commitments to the peace. We will sustain it. But on the other hand, there's been a campaign for the last two years in Jordan, uh, pressure on the king, and 80 members of parliament, or 30 members or 50 members of parliament in the last couple of weeks sent them a letter, but 80 leaders of Jordanian society sent the letter saying, in which they identified many things, but this was the one thing related to Israel, was not to renew the deal. And so they were within their rights to do it. The problem is it sends the wrong message. Uh, and, and yesterday we saw how important the relationship is because there were uh, a horrific incident, a flash flood uh, near the Dead Sea that swept away a bus with 18 children in it wow. on the Jordanian side. And Israeli helicopters were brought in at Jordan's request and soldiers went in to rescue other people and to... Um, um, to help people who were threatened by this uh, flash flood. So the Jordan-Israel relationship is always very complex. The king has domestic pressures. I don't think that that is an excuse, uh, that we should always allow people because they have, quote, domestic uh, pressures. We understand it. We, the Israel has been very flexible with all its Arab neighbors over that in in relationships that should be different and and quietly are different, but publicly are not. Everybody knows that Jordan's security is intertwined with Israel's, and that Israel does a great deal to sustain the king and and support him in many respects. And we all acknowledge that he has a very difficult uh, circumstance. So, so it's, it sounds like you're saying that what happened this week is likely not going to affect the long-term relationship between Jordan and Israel. Well, I think amongst the Israeli people, it will have an effect, and even amongst Israeli elected officials who are disappointed by this move. The question is, will they negotiate? Will they come to some sort of an understanding? Was this leverage, additional leverage? Do they want more money? Um, do they want to be paid for, for the use of the land right. uh, by the farmers? Let's see what happens in the negotiations. He had the right to do it. It's regrettable that he did it. I think sustaining the deal, as was agreed upon, uh, sends the right message. Um Look, we know, and as I said, we understand the total picture. You can't look at, you know, in isolation. And the fact that now they're trying to reassert their affinity both with Israel and with the, uh, and being reliant to to comply with the deal um, is better than what we were hearing the days before. Right, that's true. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. And I appreciate all the comments that are coming through 
on the app. Malcolm Holine is with us. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. A couple of things with the Israeli politics, if I may. Uh, first of all, those who say that the Jerusalem mayoral election is a referendum on BB's strength, uh, the political strength in Israel, you'd agree with that or not? You know, today everything's a referendum on, on BB where he gets up and what he does. And uh, well, That's true. Uh, but the, the it's a very contentious election, and I, I was, frankly, surprised to see him campaigning with Elkin now, right. because uh, in the polls he didn't look like he was doing that well, although you cannot predict. You have many candidates, religious candidates, and then the religious vote is split, uh, as you know. Um, and Moshe Leon had a rally of Haredim, and today or, or last night, and thousands of people came. Um, so you have him and Elkin and a guy Berkovich, who's very secular, and Deitch, who is the uh, who's religious, the deputy mayor now, and respected by uh, many people across the spectrum. But it's it, it's likely that no one will win the first round, and they will go into um, a runoff. I think the election is on the 30th of October, and then November 12th or 13th, there's a, there's a runoff between the top two if nobody gets more than 50%, which is most likely going to be the case. The prime minister, I don't think he came out openly endorsing anybody. Uh, this is all happening because Barkat is stepping down to run for the Knesset, the current mayor. And uh, the um, you know it, it reflects some of the factionalism in, in Jerusalem and in Israel overall. Um, so it's a, about it. So once this uh, ends on, I guess it would be Tuesday night, uh, it'll be a two-week, very, very intensive campaign <clears throat> as the runoff campaign uh, leads up into. And then we'll see. The already, people, some of the religious factions, others have said that if he wins, uh, and then we'll go with somebody else. If the guy, if the people they backed in this round, then they will switch to to um, someone else. So there'll be a lot of jockeying and a lot of promises made, and then we'll see what the outcome is. All right, and tell me uh, again on the political scene in Israel about these accusations by the prime minister uh, toward Gidon Saar, uh, former minister in the government, that he's conspiring with the president of Israel that uh, once these elections are over, and, he's, and they mean, of course, a national election, uh, that the president would offer um, a Gidon to form a, a government before uh, the current prime minister. What do you make of this story? I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> I wasn't uh, privy to any of this. Um, you know, the the uh, Sar has denied it. Sar was a very popular in the Likud party. Actually, used to be a top vote getter within the party. He was minister of education last, and then he he left on his own volition. He, or others say there was pressure, but he left, uh, went into private life, and now uh, this. Assertion. I mean, he, he always positioned himself to be a candidate uh, for prime minister to run again, to run in the future. Um, you know, because of the speculation about whether there'll be early elections and one day it's on, one day it's off. And there was some statements uh, this week, one day that's absolutely the prime minister has backed off of it. The next day he was talking about it again. <laughs> uh, so it's leverage on his part because the parties, most of the parties won't gain by it. It looks like we could would gain some seats, but... I just can't see Ruby Rivlin getting into an arrangement like that. I don't know. Maybe... Well, maybe, it's maybe. not... A, it's a, 
that that's a good point. I mean, I'm not asserting that there's any truth to it. I'm saying well, we right. have no idea, but it doesn't. It's a great soap opera. I mean, story. there is a, a you know there is a deep division between the prime minister and the president. They they don't get along, and there are comments made often, you know, without identifying the party, but everybody knows it. There's there's a lot of tension between them, uh, and um, that that gives rise to more speculation about it. You know the. Uh, he, uh, but I don't think they said now when there's no election and there's no choice to be made that I'm going to back you and we're going to conspire against the against Netanyahu. Right, I hear that. All right, you, you know how much we love uh, watching uh, uh, world leaders come to Israel, especially those who are um, uh, interested in all the technology and the advancement that Israel has made. So tell us this. Tell tell uh, tell us about this week's visit of the vice president of China. Uh, to Israel, it, it, was, it was an official economics conference, right? Like it, it, it was. It, this was not just a state visit. This was to participate together in some type of forum. So this is the fourth Israel-China joint commission on innovation. Wow. I think on innovation cooperation. Something I remember. There's a lot of uh, initials, right. and uh, there was a, a high-ranking Chinese guy who, a Chinese leader who was assigned to it. But this time, this is the uh, an upgrade, in fact, this vice president, he's, I think, number eight in the Communist Party, meaning number eight in the leadership, which is very significant. Um, and he's very close to, to Xi, the president of, of China. Uh, so this was an upgrade in this uh, conference, which is held every year. But this year, they uh, opened an innovation center together at the Perez uh, Center in Tel Aviv, and the Prime Minister and the Vice President were there. Jack Ma, many other people came to it, uh, leaders, um, uh, um, Eric Schwartz, uh, uh, Schwartz from uh, Google, Schultz uh, from Google, I know was there, and others. Uh, You know, the trade between China and Israel in the, I remember in the 90s, was like $50 million. Uh, the last year they have a record 2016 it was 16 billion dollars and the a lot of it is high tech it etc in they trade about 180 billion dollars a year with with the arab countries but it's consumer items and lower level uh things and sometimes military equipment uh, israel you know is very wary of, of doing military deals in the united states is very protective of where there's joint technology so they they don't sell military technology, but health care, I mean, it's such a wide range of issues from the Chinese buying into dairies and stuff, and Israel has expressed concern uh, about uh, what happens to intellectual property because of the past records, so the, um, you know, it, it's a careful uh, thing, but it's expanding all the time, the relationship, 150,000 Chinese, I think, will visit this year. The um, and the interesting thing at the dedication is that they had a hologram of President uh, Perez, the late President Perez, in which he spoke of his spiritual will to them. And you know, he talks always. He talked all the years about innovation, technology, right. nanotechnology, <laughs> and all those other things. So this is like the fulfillment of his dream. of this center, and there the whole history of Israel's innovative uh, record is uh, is displayed. It's amazing, and down the road we don't even realize how 
vital this relationship could be for Israel, especially when it comes to defense, when it comes to, frankly, you know, need for cash or you know some type of uh, a financial support for Israel's defense, etc. I mean, this could be an even more vital relationship than it is now. We should remember that China votes against Israel most often in the UN, and they vote with the non-aligned. They um, are often critical of Israeli policies at the same time as they are expanding their trade and and the relationship. Uh, I hope that it will have uh, an effect. But you know, the Chinese people. Uh, I met once with the, the president of China, and, and um, you know, he spoke about two great peoples: the Chinese people. Uh, two billion and uh, the Jewish people, thirteen million, <laughs> and and he held out his hands like a scale that both two great peoples. And he talked about the history, about the commitment, the, the consistency that uh, we've been in the same land and commitments. And he said, "Look, I know there are less than of you, but you are so important, and and we have a lot to learn from you." And as Netanyahu once said, "You know, the Jews are a statistical error in the census in China, and uh, <laughs> the Jewish population." <laughs> so it is. It's very important. Israel needs relations, as with India, with other countries, big countries. It's starting to warm up a little bit with Indonesia, um, and but with Korea, with Japan, it has warmed up in the last uh, couple of years. So hopefully this this will uh, continue to expand. And you know that one of the reasons I bring up this news item, aside from the fact that it's timely and important, is because I want everyone listening to recognize the miracle that's going on and how miraculous this is. When you're in it, you don't see it always, and it is a miraculous development. Right. And and what is interesting also is how the while they uh, you know recognize Palestine, and I think they they. Uh, have said that they value the relationship, it's clear that it's no longer the same rules that that would have precluded this kind of a visit or would have required uh, permission, um, given the tensions now with with Gaza, etc., that even the Arab countries are not pressing China about it and do not oppose, and that's why they can do all all of this in a much more public uh, way. Um, And I think that that too, is a message people should read into it. No question about it. Tell us about the uh, uh, the Iranian transfer of advanced missile components to Hezbollah in Lebanon this week. Well, it's something I've talked about for a long time, and it's something that's been going on. You saw all the attempts to send missiles. What What's different about this is th- these are guidance systems that they can put on the existing rockets because when the rockets used to be fired they didn't have they couldn't pinpoint the targets in Israel because they didn't have the guidance systems and that they're upgrading them so their distance can go farther which puts in, in jeopardy then military bases the Demona reactor big cities and uh, and they have a factory in Lebanon where they uh, manufacture the guidance systems and and put them in, uh, you know, because sending them through Syria has proven very costly to them. They still are trying to ship all the time weapons through Syria, and we know that an airplane landed from Iran and Lebanon loaded with military equipment, including uh, missiles. They have probably 120, 130, maybe 150,000, some say, missiles. Uh, many of them are, are small. Uh, some are very big. They can travel long distance or short. Um, as, and I'm sure over time some of them deteriorate, but they are now upgrading them with this process. And the, um, uh, you know, Hamas, and there's no sign Hezbollah right now wants to go to war, but the threat that they have that this, these could be launched and their Iranian handlers are, uh, you know, really in control of what 
what they will do ultimately. The people of Lebanon don't want it. Even Shiites in southern Lebanon, in the area controlled by, by Hezbollah, have protested the placing of these missiles. They put him in, in people's homes. How close How close are they to the border? Very close. Like on the border. Doesn't the U.N. have an obligation to clear that so area? So under 1701, they have a clear obligation. They are not exercising it, and that was true in the, in the outpost that was discovered by Israel in the Golan uh, of Hezbollah. Uh, you know, the president signed the law against Hezbollah, uh, imposing further sanctions right. uh, against them uh, just yesterday, uh, I think. And... Um, the the, the uh, Hezbollah's involvement, and you will see more and more reports now about their involvement in South America, the money to cash the drugs, uh, which provide a lot of the income. It's not coming just from Iran, and uh, uh, but it's, and it's terrorism, but also from from drugs. And then they set up legitimate businesses, which enables them to to you know infiltrate. They're coming openly into the United States. There are fifty thousand agents in South America. It's a global. It's a global operation and a global danger, and the United States' actions against them are important, and other countries have to follow suit and do the same thing. Um, the, the, uh, hopefully the sanctions in Iran will diminish their ability to, to support these uh, terrorists, but the aggressiveness is continuing. The, the, there's very little foreign focus on, on it. They kept the Lebanese border quiet but they are certainly active on the Syrian border. It used to be the reverse, right. that the Syrian border was always quiet. Mm-hmm. So we have, um, there has to be attention on what the, the threat from Hezbollah is and, and how it continues, and that the, uh, that the fact that it doesn't appear on the surface is not an indication of the reality of the situation. Speaking of the uh, hope for quiet borders, will, will this week's uh, Egyptian attempt for a ceasefire along the Gaza border with Hamas uh, be effective? There's no reason to believe uh, right now that anything has happened to, to really change it. There is a lot of pressure because it's domestic pressure, which is driving the demonstrations and other things that Hamas is, is trying to um, def- def- uh, deflect from the internal economic conditions, which are imposed by the PA. It's not by Israel. Uh, Israel allowed in Qatar-sponsored fuel to to the to Gaza, uh, the situation there ha- is deteriorating. We know that the, that that is the case. Uh, Hamas, they said, is planning uprisings in the West Bank against the PA. They were this came out from one of the um, former IDF uh, high-ranking analysts and officials, the, uh, as well as many other charges about this. I mean, we've known for for a long time, but. So Egypt wants to to try to play the role of of bringing the parties together and has tried to negotiate for a long time about it. And they look foolish every time it fails, and it fails. I don't know that they look foolish because everybody else has failed at it too. The Europeans have tried, the Americans have tried, uh, and remember now the Arab countries are backing the efforts. Qatar is the most directly involved. um, in giving uh, funding for for uh, expenses there. But the um, and and at the same time, we should note that the uh, continuing efforts at the border to cross the border, that the riots continue every weekend. They're not demonstrations; they're riots. The balloons 
set on Wednesday, I think, eight fires, yeah. and they're doing a lot of damage. People so, don't realize it. And there was a balloon with an incendiary device that landed in Yerushalayim uh, yesterday, or yeah, I think it was yesterday or the day before. And, uh, you know, th- this war continues from there. It's not that they have backed off in any way, and tens of thousands of people might show up, uh, rallied by them, maybe even paid by them, by Hamas to, to come. But they're continuing, and, uh, you know, we should um, we should take it seriously. By the way, I, back to China for a second. I forgot to mention, I wanted to, that I saw the story that the uh, influential Chinese bank has uh, announced they're stopping to work with Iran. This is the bank of Kunlun you're referring to, I think. Yeah. That the, this is a bank, and what's significant about this bank um, is that, uh, first, it's a key Chinese bank. They've stopped, they stopped taking euro-denominated money already, transactions in August, but now they've stopped all transactions, including U.S. denominations, uh, denominated currency. Uh, it's the, uh, and the Bank of Kunlun is associated with the, uh, the state-controlled energy group, so I think it's uh, CNPC or LNPC, um, and they have completely suspended all payments. This is a very important further step because the Chinese, as you know, have been still do business and still uh, are now being used as one of the ways to bypass the sanctions. Is storing oil in China? I think in Indonesia, um, but there's a, supposedly a deal with Russia uh, and with others. And they're, they are, you know, turning off the transponders on the oil tankers so that the United States and others can't track where the oil tankers are going, where they're loading up. And then they're doing some other diversionary tactics like filling up uh, largely at, at Iran and then go to Kuwait and top off uh, and take additional and then say that it's Kuwaiti oil. So they're looking for desperately for ways to bypass the, the sanctions. They announced that they're going to give subsidies to 20 million Iranians and that they're giving out 10 million cards for, for benefits because people are starving. The economic impact, both of the, of the sanctions and of the uh, efforts of government, the, the overall economic policies uh, are terrible. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, projected this week that Iran's economy would, be, would shrink by 3.6% next year. And, that, and this is after God knows how much shrinking it's been doing already in the last few that, years. And, and the currency, as you know, has gone down multiple times. I think it's now $150,000. People's accounts are, are virtually worthless. Uh, so they're infusing money. They're, they're supposedly giving foreign currency, but they don't have it. So they're trying to get foreign currency abroad, and they're making people turn in uh, their foreign co- uh, currency. So they're they're pretty desperate uh, to to stave off the unrest from increasing. I was told this week by uh, somebody from Iran, a former official, that there are at least thirteen uh, economic sector demonstrations a day, meaning from unions, businesses, others, where people are protesting. Six thousand over the last year. You don't see this reflected in in the media, uh, and that you know they killed a journalist this week. At the same time that they they were condemning Saudi Arabia, <laughs> they killed a guy on the street because he was a dissident. And uh, you know the the um, unfortunately they are a beneficiary along with Turkey from this whole controversy. Um, they're able to exploit it, 
but they're not doing it very vocally because they know that if you start turning attention to the fact that uh, these two are countries that have imprisoned more journalists probably than anybody else, certainly Turkey imprisoned 100,000 people, many journalists did not return, and, and Iran has consistently done it. So they've not made a campaign out of that. But the, the internal situation clearly is deteriorating. People's uh, economic conditions dis- compounded by the drought and uh, the lack of foreign currency. So, the, And then at some point, this will explode against the, the government. They are taking steps to uh, with the Basiji and others, and now we are going to have sanctions, additional sanctions against them. Uh, coming from the United States, and all of those who say, well, the United States acting alone and, you know, doing these things, it it doesn't work. It does work, and we see that all the European companies and others are following the U.S. lead, even though their governments are saying they're going to plan, you know, a runaround, uh, some way to bypass and some way to counter uh, uh, when the sanctions come. Everybody's afraid of these sanctions that are coming on November 4th, and they will be hard, I'm told, and, and and very restrictive, especially in the oil sector, which is a lifeline for Iran. I mean, I don't know how long they can survive being choked economically like this. It seems compliance would be the only way out, but I don't know. Maybe. And, and you know, the, 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 there's constantly ways that they invent and they find to bypass, um, they try to bypass the sanctions, but the noose keeps tightening. You know, in Treasury, they have 700 professionals in the in a in the office of uh, that deals with the imposition and tracking uh, the capital or tangible assets, so that they stop their transfer, the ability to repatriate the money from the sale of of these things. Um, and they, I have to say, I think Treasury has done a great job. I have Ms. Mandelker, who's the undersecretary in charge of the sanctions, um, spoke about it this week in Israel. She was there with Mnuchin the Secretary of Treasury, uh, who they were um, um, uh, trying to, co- they, they were there to coordinate in regard to the uh, sanctions and the impact that uh, that they will have, uh, and, and they visited other places as well. This is uh, a coordinated and important effort, and the fact that the legislation, additional legislation, sanctions are being legislated and signed by the president, equally important. Two separate, just to wrap up, two separate uh, commentors on our uh, on our app. The first says, uh, the first says, uh, crazy, there were just two balloon bombs by our house. Hashem Yishmar, this is somebody we're familiar with in Israel. And then the most recent one at 8.18 this morning, Eastern Time. This listener writes, the balloon landed next door to me in Givata Miftar, and they make them child-friendly, so a child will touch it and it explodes. Exactly. No underestimating the enemy, huh, Malcolm? This is exactly right. I'm glad you said it because, you know, people talk about toys, and and I keep telling them that that is part of the sinister nature of this thing, is that they will use toys. They want, they want to harm children. They want to harm everybody, but... But children as well, they kill their own, but they certainly want to kill the Israeli children, and they don't discriminate whether it's an Arab or Israeli child, because they don't know who's going to pick it up. Right. But the, you know, and often the things they launch land in their own territory. You know, some of the victims that are being blamed on Israel were really victims of these stones where these kids, you know, whip them up into, to hit, go at a high velocity, and they don't get across the border. They hit their own people. And, and can kill them or badly wound them. That That's only one example, but the rockets often hit within the territory, their own territory. 
and this um, the use of of the balloons and kites and things. Uh, it, it, you know, and the world says, well, it's you know, it's uh, it's the only way of protest. It's it's a, the, to legitimate it in any way is just simply such an outrage. This is a human rights violation. This is true. Uh, should be a war crime, and they run to the U- UN, the ICC, and everything. To- to do it. And I have to say, U.S. has stood by them. I think many of the Arab countries also find it abhorrent. The Europeans, as usual, are generally silent, although there are some that have issued uh, condemnations. They're so busy now uh, worrying about whether the U.S. Uh, peace plan rather, and the France now threatening to, to come up with its own. We know what success the Europeans have. It's only the United States that can do it. And here you have the, the people in the administration who are working on this all the time. I think Mr. Greenblatt is going to Israel next week again. But there's no partner. And all of this is artificial, and it's meant to build pressure on the United States. They should not succumb to it. We should do more. I saw John Bolton this week was in Azerbaijan it was a, and heard at a great visit. We have to build the ties with the allies that we have. Unfortunately, the, the, all the attention has been focused on the, this unjustified and, and still incomprehensible attack in in. Um, in, uh, at the embassy and in, in, at the consulate in in Turkey, okay. they've averted attention, uh, and many things still go on. The press does not cover most most of this, and it's very regrettable because people then don't have a real picture of what's happening in the world. All right, thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak thank again you. next week. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Fridays for the weekly update, seven forty Eastern time, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.